Well, welcome back to the uh, present. Good to have you here today as we uh, kick off the fall. It's that time. Bears home opener. Everything's sort of uh, coming full circle. Uh, special welcome to those joining us at Crossroads Highland Park and the 01. And we hope there's people joining us at the 01. Last night we, we sort of transitioned. We expanded the 01. It still meets on Sunday mornings at 9 and 11, but we expanded the Saturday night service and it was place was packed. And so I asked Siler, is there anybody left to come back tomorrow? So we'll find out. But anyway, welcome to everyone. Good to have you here. I don't know whether or not you uh, saw this, but about two months ago, Amazon issued a press release in which they, they noted that uh, a certain sentence had been underlined more often, twice as often as the next most popular sentence underlined on anything that had been uh, printed by Kindle at any time. Uh, and it was a line out of the second volume of The Hunger Games. And the line says, because sometimes things happen to people and they're not ready for it. Now, I, uh, I underlined this passage in what I was reading, aware of the irony that I was underlining a passage about passages being underlined, and generally just a little freaked out by the fact that Jeff Bezos keeps track of what everybody is underlining in Kindle. Uh, that's a little scary. But I underline it because that is what we are trying to address in this series. Because sometimes things happen to people that they're not ready for. We want to figure out what it might look like to be ready for those things. So let me start at the beginning and say this series called Future You is not about predicting the future, right? Uh, It's not about trying to figure out exactly what's going to unfold over the next years and and decades. Uh, There are people that try and do that. That is not what we're going to do. The question in front of us, the challenge in front of us is to figure out how might we live uh, lives that allow us to thrive come what may. How can we position ourselves so that we live well, whatever the future might bring? And even more than that, how could we position ourselves so that we could be the kind of people that would allow others to live well also? That we could promote uh, a common good. Uh, The subject of the future is, is a topic of fascination. It's a topic of speculation. Uh, Everybody wants to know what's coming. I just want to say um, we're interested in being ready for whatever might come. Well, let me start by thanking you for being here. I realize that some of you are are, um, taking a a little step outside your comfort zone. The most spiritual thing you've done in the last five years is shop at Whole Foods. This is not part of your normal cadence. Uh, Some of you have been away for a while. Welcome back. Uh, Every fall... We do a series that is designed to be an entrance ramp uh, for people to sort of take a step back towards God. We believe that uh, that would be a good thing for everybody uh, when people take a step back towards God. That everybody wins when that happens, in particular you. And so the next step for you might be attending a worship service uh, such as this or getting into a small group where you have a chance to discuss 
uh, what is being talked about in a Bible passage or a sermon, to do life together, to talk about what's unfolding for you. It might be that it's uh, the, the step back for you, the, the necessary next step for you in terms of your spiritual growth would be uh, to serve, to, to get involved in tutoring kids in North Chicago or to be involved um, you know, working with the homeless at PADS, or to be involved in a music team here, or to, to take a next step with the Justice Center, uh, to be involved some way in trying, to, uh, in trying to love and serve others. It could be that the next step for you is to meet with somebody, to talk with a pastor or someone on staff, and try and uh, help you take a next step. But it is the premise of, of the fall series that we want to slow down and give people a chance to jump on board, and that if you take a step towards God, if you pursue the God who is pursuing you, that uh, that would be a win for everybody, especially for you. But you are the one that has to do it. We can make it as easy as possible for it to happen, but you have to take the next step. So um, many of you perhaps read the book that I wrote on the future, and if you did, you know that I argue that Change is a constant. Uh, The world has always been changing. It will continue to change. But there are moments, there are periods when uh, the the change factor is multiplied, when when the delta force is particularly big, and lots of things happen in a short period of time. And I happen to believe that we're, we're entering a period like that, and I lay out the reasons why I think that, and I, I sort of map out some of the things that I think may unfold generally over the course of the next couple decades. Uh, books about the future are full of flaws. Mine is no different. Perhaps it's worse. Uh, don't know. Time will tell. But the big thing is that I think we need to be preparing for the future. And I think that there are opportunities to do that. And I think in particular that one of the things we should do is to look backward in order to be ready to think forward. This is not a new idea to me, Winston Churchill, Peter Drucker, many people say, if you want to look ahead, you've got to look back. And the further ahead you want to look, the further back you have to study. So we're going to look back 3,000 years to a handful of young boys who are particularly adept at navigating a world of change. Their names are Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they were Jewish young boys that ended up in Babylon uh, because of uh, the loss of a war. And they survive, and in fact they thrive, and they become agents for the common good. And I think there's something for us to learn from them. So... The, the story of, of Daniel and his comrades is told uh, in the book of Daniel, which is part of the Bible. In particular, it's part of the, uh, the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures, the, the left half of the book. Uh, and and it is, um, it's a fascinating story. Now, a lot of people don't know what to do with this. It can be a confusing book to read. It's not laid out chronologically, uh, and so they're not always certain how to put this together. The fact is, there are 66 books in here. Uh, they, they break out 39 in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, 27 in the New Testament. And uh, they were written over the course of 1,600 years by 40 different authors 
on three continents and in three languages, and it goes after all the big topics. Who am I? Where did I come from? What's expected of me? What happens when I die? All those topics and many others are discussed in this book. It is not, though some think otherwise, it is not a collection of rules or advice or, or religious practices. It is not, uh, it's not full of inspirational stories that we should follow in order to earn God's favor. It is instead a story. And the story that it tells is the story of God's love for us. And uh, it, it starts like any good story. It starts with things going well, but then there's a lot of tension. Something goes wrong, and you read the story to try and figure out how that tension is going to be resolved. Are the good guys going to win? Are the bad guys going to win? What's going to happen? So uh, we can put up the first chart. What we have here is, is the Bible sort of diagrammed. So again, on the left you have, uh, you have the Old Testament, which breaks out in, in eight different epics. And then you've got an intermission of 400 years, and then you've got the New Testament. So you'll see on the far left that there's something that I I label as context. Genesis 1 through 11 gives us the backstory against which everything else is going to follow. So when the book opens, everything is great. Utopia. It's a garden. It's wonderful. But pretty quickly, so like page 2 everything comes apart. Sin, evil, death, destruction, mayhem, problems happen. And you read on for the next seven or eight pages to be persuaded that the problems that exist are bigger than than we're going to be able to fix. The good news in the midst of the bad news and the mayhem is that God makes a promise that he he will fix it. In particular, he's going to send someone who will fix it. He's going to send someone who will defeat evil. He's going to send someone that will reconcile us back together. He's going to, he's going to take care of this. And then uh, we start reading the, the actual story, which begins in Genesis 12 when God calls Abraham. And, and from Genesis 12, so that's about page 15 in my Bible, all the way through about four-fifths of the book, we're reading, wondering, where is the good guy? Where is the promise? So um, if we can put the, the next chart up there. The, so what happens is we sort of follow Abraham and his descendants. They're called the Jews. We follow the Jews because God has said to Abraham, if you follow me, I am going to do my promise through you and your descendants. So I will bless you, I will give you land, and I am going to, I'm going to carry out my plan through your people. And so initially Abraham and, and uh, Sarah don't have any kids, and then they, then they have a son, Isaac, and then they start to pick up some land, and they start to pick up some power, and it begins to grow. And then they go into, uh, then they, they go to Egypt because of a drought, 
and a famine, and they live in Egypt for uh, a while, and then they fall into slavery, and they sort of go down in terms of their power and influence. And then, then there's a conquest. They come back. They, they take back the promised land, and they exist through a period we call the Judges. And they're marching along sort of, it's okay, it's not great. And then they, they ask for a king. And, uh, and Nathan the prophet says, you don't want a king, you get a king, king's going to tax you, king's going to draft your young men, king's going to do things you don't want. They go, we want a king. So God gives them a king exactly like what they want, tall, dark, and good looking, uh, lots of hair, photogenic smile, kisses the babies, everything that he does is what they say they want, and he proves to be uh, over time, a disaster. Then, uh, then we see under David, they're going to shoot up. So put the graph back up for a second. They shoot up, and they're going to reach their, their pinnacle. This is a thousand years after Abraham. They're going to reach the pinnacle of their power under David and Solomon. But as soon as Solomon dies, everything falls apart. The, the two tribes split, and in 722, 10 of them are wiped out. Ten of the tribes are wiped out by the Assyrians, and they're demolished. And there's another group that hangs on for another hundred years, but in 586, uh, the southern two tribes called Judah, they're overrun by the Babylonians. And the Babylonians march them, the survivors. They sack Jerusalem, they destroy the temple, and they march the people that are still alive 500 miles, much of it through the desert, to get to Babylon. And they hold them prisoners for 70 years. We call this the period of the exile. And that, the next graph, that is what we're going to be looking at. The story that we're going to focus on takes place during the exile. And, and there, are four, there are four young men who are going to live during this period and they're going to thrive. They're among the 500 that are, or excuse me, they're among the people that are marched 500 miles to Babylon. They get pulled aside because the, what, what the Babylonians do, the Jews are not the only group they've conquered. They're the new superpower. They're conquering everybody. What they do is they, they bring a few young men, influential Young men who are not formed as warriors, they can be influenced. They bring them into essentially White House internships and they, they train them. And what they want them to be are intermediaries between the Babylonians and the people that they're holding captive. So I, I saw this firsthand uh, on a trip to Kenya 15 years ago. Uh, the Maasai... The Kenyan government had done this with the Maasai. You might be familiar with the Maasai tribe. If you see pictures of Kenyan of Kenya, it often features the Maasai. They wear bright robes, they have spears, and they jump. That's that you always get a picture of them jumping. They jump with their hands by their sides, but they really can jump high. That's the Maasai. The Maasai believe that uh, God gave all the cows in the world to them. And so if you have a cow and you're not a Maasai, well, you obviously stole it from them. So they're going to steal it back. So the Maasai are cattle thieves. It's causing a problem. And when the Republic of Kenya was being formed in 1964, the government got together and they said, here's what we're going to do. We are going to take one young boy out of every village and we're going to bring them to Nairobi and we're going to educate them. 
And they'll be here for the, the entirety of their schooling. We'll let them go back every couple months or so. So they, they maintain connections with their family and their tribe. But then, as adults, they will uniquely be positioned to be able to represent the Kenyan government to the Maasai village that they're from and to represent the Maasai village back to the Kenyans. They will understand both cultures. So when I was in Kenya, I got a, a tour and then taken out to a Maasai village by one of these men. He was 45 at the time, but he had grown up. First few years in a Maasai village, he had then been brought into Nairobi, so he sort of understood both cultures. So that's what the Babylonians are doing. And Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are the four young men that are brought into this internship. Now, let's just be clear. Um, while there's some perks to this, there's some real downsides to being an intern in the palace uh, under Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. So, um, first of all, these guys are young, so they're 12, 13 years of age. Uh, they're being, you know, ripped aside from their family, probably many of whom have died. And, and they are, this is, um, the palace has some upsides to it, but it's, first of all, got to be overwhelming. So Babylon was, was militarily and in some ways culturally far superior to Israel and Jerusalem at the time. First of all, they were a powerhouse. So Babylon itself, the capital, had two walls around it. One of them was 17 miles long, and it was wide enough on the top of this wall for chariots to pass by each other. So they were forever patrolling it. Inside that wall, there was another wall that was 150 feet thick. Right? So they are secure. Additionally, when you got past those two walls, you entered into this opulent uh, uh, community. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world were the gardens, the hanging gardens in Babylon. So these young boys get brought into this culture where they're like, wow, we haven't seen anything like this, right? I mean, if you're, if you're downtown in Chicago, you can tell the, you know, the, 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 the people that have never left the farm, right, because they're just walking along Chicago looking like this. Like, I've never, I've never seen buildings this tall. And they come into this culture. One of the first things that happens is uh, that they're castrated. They're turned into eunuchs. One of the other things that happens is ta- their names are taken from them. So they had these robust uh, profound, uh, spiritually significant Hebrew names uh, about God and his provision and all that. And they get essentially called uh, nicknames, Babylonian derogatory terms, right? So just for, for, for Sunday morning church purposes, PG purposes, it's like, okay, you used to be called Mike and you were named after an archangel. We're going to call you loser instead. So that's your new name is Loser. And you will be idiot and you will be, you know, so they're, they're being pushed down. It's a difficult assignment uh, that they are given. And yet, they will emerge as men of great courage and conviction and wisdom and depth. And they will be a, a force for good in Uh, Babylon until it falls. And then they'll, Daniel will be picked up by the Persian king, recognized for his great wisdom, 
and, uh, and, and stature. So the question behind this series is, what can we learn from these young men? What did they do in order to navigate the forces of change successfully and emerge as people uh, of stature and faith and wisdom? So uh, I would like to suggest that you do a couple things at the beginning of this. One of them, the first one I'll talk about, is that you read the first half of the book of Daniel, the first six chapters. Uh, it's easy to read. It's, it's like an action-adventure movie. Uh, it, there's all kinds of political drama and intrigue. There's, uh, there's no car chase scenes in it, but there's lots of other things happening. You know, someone will be thrown into a furnace. Daniel gets lowered into a lion's den. There's a lot of interesting things that are happening in the first chapters of Daniel. Uh, by the way, this is real history. Okay, so the Bible never says a long time ago in a faraway land and then gives some made-up story. Right? The Bible always grounds itself and says something like, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Israel, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon marched. I mean, it, it's grounded in time. space. When I went to college 30 years ago, there were lots of efforts to undermine the book and say, it's just... It doesn't line up. 30 years of archaeological digs, the discovery of ancient uh, historians' writings and other things, all you know, pretty exclusively corroborates what is found in the book. This is real history that you're reading. People want to dismiss it because of miracles. People want to dis- dismiss it because there's prophecy in here that gets fulfilled. They say, well, that couldn't happen. But... It, I want to say this is, this is a book uh, that I believe is uniquely inspired and you're reading real history. So, look, I want to encourage you to jump into this series. And I want to, I want to do my best to persuade you that it's worth the limited time that you have. If you were here last week, you know that I said the most precious commodity we have is time because uh, there's just all kinds of opportunities in front of us. But I want to suggest this is worth your time for five reasons. Number one, it's important to look ahead. Okay, so I think it's always important to look ahead. I think we're headed into a time of more significant change than we've been through. I think that the default approach that many people will have if they're not thinking about this is to simply try to move faster. I'm not sure that's ever been a good approach. I don't think it will work going forward. I think in the past, uh, thinking ahead has been a good practice, a wise practice. I think it's about to become a survival skill. I think we're going to have to shine our headlights further into the future in order to navigate the kinds of things that are coming our way. By the way, thinking about the future is really all about the present. Thinking about the future is really all about the present because what you think is going to happen tomorrow, next month, next year, shapes how you live right now. This isn't just an academic exercise. This shapes who we are, how we think, and how we live today. So I believe that looking ahead is an important thing to do. Number two, I don't think we're doing this very well. Now, there are some people 
You know, occasionally you'll read a, an old book of some, somebody, some political theorist or economist or somebody who's made predictions, and you go, wow, they got a lot of things right. There are venture capitalists that seem to be uniquely astute at figuring out what's going to unfold. Uh, science fiction writers are often right in predicting what's going to come. So this, this week was the 50th anniversary of the start of Star Trek. So I read some articles about Gene Roddenberry and, you know, how, you know, clairvoyant he was about the things that were going to come. And when I was doing research for the book, uh, I stumbled into this, you know, you can do this in in internet, you stumble into these whole sites that you're like, wow, this is somebody's life here. So I stumbled into some sites where, like, PhD level discussions about how uh, Hanna-Barbera got the future right with the Jetsons show and how many things the Jetsons actually were, were, were correct about. So there are people who look ahead and get some things right. But by and large, we tend to be pretty motivated, completely compelled to think about today and next week. And many people have a very difficult time thinking past this quarter. <laughs> and to think about next quarter is, is really long-term thinking. Almost nobody's thinking five years out, ten years out, fifty years out. And as a pastor, I'm always frustrated at how hard it is to get people to think about eternity. Say, you know what? God suggests we're going to live forever. So that would be like more important than a two-week vacation. You got to think about forever because it should shape how you live today. We don't do a very good job of thinking long-term. We can do better. So in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, so 1 Chronicles is like Daniel. It's a book found in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, the left half of the Bible. 1 Chronicles, like its sequel, 2 Chronicles, are books that don't give us any new information, but they give us the flyover. It's sort of the big perspective of what's happening. It retells stories, but it repackages them to sort of give us a, the, the, the 30,000 foot level. I'm pretty confident most of you have not made it through First Chronicles. That's because the first nine chapters are genealogies. So uh, if ever there was a book that's easy to stop reading, it's Chronicles, First Chronicles. But if you persevere and you get to chapter 12, there's this very interesting passage there. And what's happening is it's now telling the story of, of what goes on uh, at a critical moment in the history of Israel. So Saul has just been killed. He's the first king. Tall, dark, good looking, but ineffective. He has led the troops in a battle against the Amalekites and it's gone poorly. And before he was going to be overrun and killed himself by the Amalekites, he falls on his sword and so he's dead. His head is uh, parted from his shoulders and placed on a pole. And the, the Amalekites place it in their temple. as a big rallying cry. They've, they've killed the king. And, and, and Israel goes into a full-scale retreat. They give up all these villages because their defenses have, have withdrawn. A group of people at this moment gather in Hebron. 
And what happens is reported by Ezra, who writes First Chronicles. What Ezra tells us in First Chronicles 12 is the list of people who sign up to be with David. So 11 of the 12 tribes of Israel will sign on to have David as their king. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32, there's a statement that says, it's listing you know, all the soldiers and the money and whatever is being pledged. And it says, and from the tribe of Issachar, 200 men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. So 200 people uh, who understood the times. The Hebrew word that's used here is bina, and it means who are shrewd, who are calculating, who are wise, who are studious, who are, who are perceptive. 200 perceptive, clever, studious, strategic thinking men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. And, and they, will, they will help David change everything. That's the period where it, they just shoot up. And Israel will become this powerful uh, nation. They'll become the superpower. They'll defeat all the enemies. David will fill the temple uh, with gold. He'll fill the treasury with money. He'll, he'll push back the borders. Uh, he'll do all of that. And part of what we pick up in First Chronicles is that part of the reason is Part of the resources that he has are people who understood the times. Um, Max Dupree, former chairman of uh, Herman Miller, a, a Fortune 500 company, and, and Dupree was the author of a couple books on leadership. Uh, Dupree said the first job of a leader is to define reality. And so I want to suggest that, that you can, we can, define the situation. This is where we are. This is what's going on. These are the things that are in the pipeline headed our way. How do we position ourselves to live well in that kind of a setting? So uh, I think looking at it is important. I think we're doing a bad job of it. I think we can do better. Number four, I think now is is a particularly important time to decide to do better. Uh, I don't know how you get your news, newspaper, TV, Twitter feed, Google News. I, I don't know. But I know that, you know, aside from the fluff, there's a handful of stories that continue to be repeated. ISIS continues to terrorize. Uh, Europe is fractured and fracturing. Uh, we, we've got North Korea advancing their nuclear program. Uh, the United States has come through a summer in which there's been a lot of violence and racial tension. Um, some people will say it's the worst time and the, this election is the most important election in, in the history of America. I, I don't, I don't want to go there. I don't think those things are true. But I think it's an important time for us to pause and figure out where we are and what it would look like going forward, which leads to the fifth point, And that is, I think now is a particularly good time, important time, for us to seek God's counsel. So, full disclosure, um, I believe uh, that, that an almighty, holy, creating God exists. I believe that he loves you. 
And uh, I believe that this book is uniquely inspired, divinely inspired, and that it is full of the kind of counsel that would allow us to, to live lives pleasing to God. And I think that there is a great value for us to sort of mine the story of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to figure out how we might more effectively move forward. So, some of you have, have not taken any significant spiritual ground in 30 years. Uh, you, you might have other parts of your life working well, professionally or academically, or you're in great shape, or financially, whatever. Maybe not. Maybe, maybe everything is unraveling. But uh, the spiritual cultivation of your soul, your relationship with God, is not something you have prioritized. I want to suggest that this is enormously important, and now is a good and easy time for you to jump in. Um, let, me, let me bring this to a close by telling you a story. Uh, a couple weeks ago, somebody came up to me that I didn't know, and they said, hey, hey, I, I, read, I read your book. Oh, okay, well, you and my mom, so there's, there's a, f- a few of you out there. And he said, so and I just wanted to say, you know, you sort of pulled your punches, didn't you? He goes, you, you think things are going to get bad. And you sort of gave us all of that, but you didn't come right out and say it. You, you sort of held back, but we're supposed to connect the dots and know that you think things are going to get bad. And I said, no, no, I, I sort of said as much as I was comfortable saying. I, I, I you know, think some things are going to get bad, but I think some things are going to be good. And he goes, yeah, 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 but, but really what you think. I mean, I know what you said, but really what you think is that things are going to get bad, right? You, you gave us enough information, we could figure that out. You think things are going to get bad. And I said, well, look, I, I'm, I try to be clear. I'm not a futurist. I don't, this is not my day job. I read a lot of other people, and I just tried to write a book report and tell you what everybody else is saying. Some think the sky is falling. Some think utopia is around the next corner. I sort of cut and pasted some of those things. I think some things are, are headed in the wrong direction, and I think some things are going to be better. He goes, yeah, yeah, I know what you said in the book. I'm just saying, but it's just us, just you and me, I won't quote you. You think things are going to get bad, don't you? And I said, well, you know what, here's what I think. I said, as a matter of fact, this is what I know. Things are going to get bad for you. <laughs> and he said, I said, look, I'm, I'm, I, don't, I don't mean to pick on you, but here's what I know, right? If you live long enough, the wheels will fall off. People you love are going are gonna to get sick and die. You might get cancer. You might get fired. I, I don't know. I had a stroke. I don't know what's going to happen to you. But if you live long enough, there is pain in your future. It happens 100% of the time. And so I don't know how things are going to go globally. But what I do know is that at some point we all face trials and that it is in your best interest to figure out how to live a good life before God right now. I believe there is great value in in wrestling with these issues of faith, and I believe there's great value in doubling down on friendships. So 
I think there is a, a great opportunity to think strategically about that. And I want to suggest that you jump in. So when you came in, you got a card. Uh, take that card out for just a second. Uh, look, I, I'm, I am encouraging you to sign up, to jump in, to fill out the card, and and then to make a couple things a part of the next six weeks. First of all, that you would be back next weekend. Okay, there's eight different services to choose from, three different campuses. Do you come back next weekend? Uh, there was an ALS challenge. I'm giving you a challenge. There was an ALS, ALS challenge last year, you know, to raise money for ALS. And it's the ice bucket challenge, right? You had to dump ice water on your head. This is so much less painful than that. Uh, but you have to show up. There, there is no way around that. It's part of the way God has scripted this. So you show up for a worship service. Number two, I want to encourage you to read some things. In addition to Daniel 1 through 6, we are going to start, not, not tomorrow, but the following Monday, we're going to start a series of daily devotions that if you sign up and give us your email address, you will get every morning about 2 o'clock in the morning. It'll come to your inbox. And these are five different takes during the week on the same topic as the sermon. There, it takes five minutes to read them. They're very short. But I want to encourage you to read some things. Thirdly, I want to encourage you to be in a small group, in a discussion group. Because, one, I think you get so much more out of it. But additionally, uh, I think having good friends and doing life together is something that, that the future is going to pull us away from and we're going to have to be more intentional about it. So if you read my book, you know that I think this is critical. So I want to encourage you to get into a small group. We have 100-plus small groups. Uh, many of them have openings. You can start a new small group. We also have open small groups. So uh, at the Highland Park campus, uh, it's on Monday nights. Uh, Lake Forest campus, it's Tuesday. And at uh, the Crossroads campus, it's Thursday. You could attend any of those. Those are led by staff. Those are, those are also a little bit more relational and intentional. I want to encourage you uh, to take a next step. Next week, we're going to look at how to navigate fear and, and to be courageous in the face of some of the challenges that are coming our way. Some of you deal with a lot of fear now. We're going we're gonna to try and look and say, how do we... Some of you are very frightened by prospects of the future. So how did Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego deal with these kinds of issues? I want to encourage you to come back. I want to encourage you to prioritize these, uh, these next six weeks for this series. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you as always for the uh, assurance that we can find in a relationship with you that um, things will end well and that you've got this. I pray for those that don't know that. I pray for those who deal with some significant levels of angst because of uh, projections or discussions about the future and a sense that all of this might be um, unfolding willy-nilly. I pray that they could, they could gain uh, a great sense of confidence in your goodness and love for them. I pray that you would guide uh, this series. I pray that we could figure out how to live well and be forces for good, the common good, forces for you uh, in a world that is changing. So guide us, direct us, bless us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.